this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. This is the Wednesday, January 18th edition. It's brought to you here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. This is Andrew Hopp, your reader. I'm filling in for this afternoon. Hopefully here in the next week or so, we'll have the Drake students back uh, reading to you again, which I'm sure many of you are very excited about. Uh, taking a check on the forecast before we get into the headlines, as we are experiencing snow this afternoon, and uh, we do have a winter storm warning in effect uh, going through the afternoon and into tonight. So I'm going to bring you the full detailed description here of the forecast. Expect snow and sleet possibly mixed with rain and freezing rain before 3 o'clock. Uh, so we would have seen that by now. Then snow possibly mixed with sleet between 3 and 4 p.m. this hour. And then snow after 4 p.m. The snow and sleet could be heavy at times, patchy blowing snow between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m., the high near 33 degrees for your Wednesday. Expect those winds from the east north, we, northeast to gust as high as 30 miles per hour. The chance of precipitation is 100%. Little or no ice accumulation is expected. That's the good part. Total daytime snow and sleet accumulation of up to 4 inches possible. So that's your outlook for this afternoon. For tonight, expect snow mainly before midnight. Patchy blowing snow after 2 a.m., the low around 25 degrees. Blustery conditions with an east-northeast wind um, becoming uh, north-northwest after midnight. That wind of uh, 14 to 20 miles per hour coming out of the north and north, uh, I'm sorry, out of the east, east and northwest, up to 20 miles per hour becoming north-northwest after midnight, gusting as high as 33 miles per hour. There we go. Expect a 100% chance of precipitation, up to 5 inches of new snow possible. Thursday, mostly cloudy with the temperature falling to around 25 by 8 in the morning. Blustery conditions with winds from the northwest gusting as high as 36 miles per hour. Thursday night, partly cloudy, low around 12. Still gusty, winds gusting from the northwest up to 21 miles per hour. That's on Thursday night. And then on Friday... Partly sunny conditions with a high near 26. That's your extended forecast there. Looking at Saturday, we might see some more snow, a 20% chance of snow on Saturday. High near 30 degrees. Sunday, partly sunny, a high near 27. And let's see, Monday, mostly cloudy, a high near 31. Maybe we'll see some of that stuff melt off. I had a lady on the phone tell me today how much she uh, enjoyed the snow because she didn't like the brown city. So, so if you like the snow, now's the time to enjoy it. For the rest of us who would uh, prefer it to be a little warmer, we'll just have to track it out with everybody else. Anyway, with all that being said and read, again for this afternoon, expect a wintry mix and patchy blowing snow, a high of 33 degrees for your Wednesday. Now on to the news and the headlines. Funds arrived just in time for Iowa Conservation Group to buy Little Sioux Scout Ranch. That by... Margie Ducey, it's a story out of the Omaha World Herald here in the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. Also, Raffle launched his fundraiser for Southwest Iowa Leadership Academy. Tim Johnson's story, and our final front page story, proposed Iowa bill would defy federal COVID-19 regulations. What's that about? Well, I guess we'll find out. That's a story by Caleb McAuliffe. But starting it off now, funds arrived just in time for Iowa Conservation Group to buy Little Sioux Scout Ranch. This is a Margie Ducey story. Donations, it begins, donations may 
Many sent along with heartwarming stories about protecting the land helped the Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation move forward with an agreement to buy the Little Sioux Scout Ranch in western Iowa from the Mid-America Council of the Boy Scouts of America. The nonprofit conservation group raised nearly $2 million before December 31st, the deadline for exercising an option to purchase the 1,776-acre property that had been used as a scout camp for more than 50 years by troops from Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. The scout camp connected many folks to nature, and they want to ensure it can keep doing so, said Abby Hade Terpstra, the foundation's director of philanthropy. Terpstra said the foundation received more than 500 gifts, including $500,000 from Polina and Bob Schlott of Crescent, Iowa, who read about the possible purchase in the World Herald. Other lead donations included $500,000 from the Iowa West Foundation of Council Bluffs, $300,000 from the Gilcrest Foundation of Sioux City, and $250,000 from the Mid-America Foundation, Mid-American Foundation. The Schlotts have a history of supporting transformational community projects in the Omaha and Council Bluffs area, and Terpstra said the foundation is grateful that they wanted to see this piece of the Les Hills protected. When we saw the possibility to have this wonderful 1,800-acre natural woodland and prairie property protected for the enjoyment of future generations, it was an easy decision to support making it happen, the couple said in an email. We're grateful for Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation's leadership in preserving this very special place. The foundation will take possession when it closes on the property tentatively scheduled for the end of January. Cody Wollers, the foundation's Les Hills Land Stewardship Director, will start working on a management plan that addresses the needs of both nature and people on the site. Scouts from the Mid-America Council will continue to use the site as they have been for the immediate future and will figure out what wider public access looks like in the future with the help of the Iowa DNR, which manages the adjacent Les Hills State Forest, Terpstra said. In 2021, the Gilwell Foundation, which owns all the properties used by the council, decided to sell the camp due to declining attendance. At that time, Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation purchased an option to buy the property that expired at the end of 2022, setting a goal to raise $2 million of the $7 million-plus project. And working on the sale with the council, the Heritage Foundation has agreed to do three things. Open the property to the public, that's number one. Maintain the memorial to four scouts who died in a 2008 tornado on the property. That's number two. And finally, honor and share the history of the ranch as a scout camp. While the property won't immediately be open to the public, a, po a public open house is planned on the site in late spring or early summer. The land, which sits about halfway between Omaha and Sioux City, is mostly old-growth oak woodland and remnant prairie in the Les Hills, a globally unique area consisting of ridges formed by wind-blown soil. The property has more than 25 miles of established trails and a 20-acre lake, making it an ideal spot for hiking, bird watching, wilderness camping, fishing, and hunting. The support for this project has been amazing, Foundation President Joe McGovern said. Donors have told us they want to see this place protected, staying in one piece and not being developed, but they're also excited to see it open to the public eventually. The photo here shows generations of scouts used the Little Sioux Scout Ranch shown during a reopening in 2009, the year after a tornado killed 
four scouts on the property. The land will eventually be open to the public. And the photo shows them saluting a flag. That photo by Laura Inns of the World Herald. Our next front page story, I will bring to you after I tell you about the actual headline photo here, which has nothing to do with any of these stories, except uh, school's being closed. It shows uh, Mark and Lori Fashada, a Canadian couple, a Canadian couple, eh? Of Cut Knife Saskatchewan, snapping a selfie during a sunset stroll across the Bob Carey Pedestrian Bridge on Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. So yesterday. They, the two are on their way to Florida for a vacation, and they decided to stay the night in Omaha after exploring the riverfront. Well, that sounds nice. Well, Mark and Lori Fashada, I hope you had a wonderful time. If you're listening to us somehow, some way, or if you know Mark and Lori from Canada, eh? I hope you have a wonderful and safe trip. There is one note on here. There will be no school today, January 18th, in the Council Bluffs Community School District or the St. Albert Catholic Schools due to the forecast of winter weather conditions. Find more information on page A3. Well, if we had brought that to you early in the morning, that would make sense. But for right now, school would have been out anyway by the time you're, <laughs> you're hearing this. So I hope you didn't send your kids to school today. Otherwise, they would have been in a rough situation. Have to walk back in the snow. No fun. Proposed Iowa bill would defy federal COVID-19 regulations. It's written by Kayla McAuliffe of the Lee Des Moines Bureau, Dateline Des Moines. A proposed Iowa bill seeking to undermine potential federal regulations that would require COVID-19 vaccinations or testing for businesses could put Iowa state-run occupational safety and health administration plan in jeopardy. The bill, Senate File 45, passed a subcommittee on Tuesday. Republican Senators Dennis Guth, or Guth, G-U-T-H, and Tim Crayenbrink voted for it, while Senator Bill Dotzler, a Democrat, voted against it. The bill would prohibit the state's labor commissioner from enforcing a federal occupational health and safety regulation requiring employers to do three things. Determine whether or not an employee or prospective employee has received a COVID-19 vaccine. Determine whether or not an employee or prospective employee has received a test for current or past COVID-19 infection or ask about the results of a test. Then the third thing, test employees or prospective employees for current or past COVID-19 infections. There are no OSHA regulations requiring vaccines or testing in place currently. A 2021 rule requiring businesses with more than 100 employees to require vaccinations or weekly testing was struck down last year by the U.S. Supreme Court. Iowa is one of several states with a state-administered OSHA plan, and representatives for Iowa's labor division, business leaders, and labor leaders warned the bill could compromise that plan. If the federal OSHA finds Iowa OSHA not in compliance with federal standards, it could scrap the Iowa plan and take over administering Iowa's occupational safety rules, they said. J.D. Davis, vice president for public policy of the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, said working with federal regulators is more cumbersome than working with state regulators, and he'd prefer to see the program remain in state hands. That's important, especially when we're investigating accidents or having inspections, that you have somebody that's responsive and close, he said. It also allows you to get to know the personalities that, you are, doing the, that are doing the investigations. While Guth recommended passage, he said he wanted to do more research into the conflict between federal and state OSHA regulations before taking it up in a committee. We won't 
be in a rush to get this to committee right away. We'll take a little bit of time doing that, he said. The bill would need to go to a vote in the Workforce Committee before being taken up in a floor vote in the Republican-controlled Senate. It doesn't necessarily have to ever be taken up in committee. It could just die, Guth added in an interview after the meeting. Dotzler said Iowa should follow federal regulations regarding COVID-19 safety. He also said he was concerned with the way Iowa OSHA is run. It's important as a society that we remain healthy, and the only way we're going to remain healthy is if we believe in science and what is coming out of the disease control experts in the field. He said... The legislature has taken similar measures to limit vaccination requirements since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Laws are in place blocking so-called vaccine passports. They're not so-called, they are. And allowing employees to submit waivers for vaccine mandates and collect unemployment benefits if they are fired for not receiving a COVID-19 vaccine. A bill that would have prohibited all businesses from requiring vaccination Testing and mask wearing for employees failed last year when Republicans did not muster the votes to pass it. OSHA is finalizing permanent COVID-19, a permanent COVID-19 rule for healthcare settings, according to Bloomberg Law. OSHA has not revealed the text of the rule. All right, in our final front page story, raffle launched as fundraiser for Southwest Iowa Leadership Academy. That's written by Tim Johnson. The Southwest Iowa Leadership Academy will hold a 50-50 to raffle to raise money for this year's camp. We've never held a 50-50 raffle, so this is a new venture for us, said Deb Master, director. Our goal is to sell 2,000 tickets, which would gross $10,000, which is split between us and the winner. The winner would be responsible for any taxes on the prize money. For the past 34 years, the Southwest Iowa Leadership Academy has provided a four-day leadership experience for incoming 8th graders from Kern, Lewis Central, St. Albert, Trainer, Tri-Center, Underwood, and Wilson Middle Schools. The Academy is a nonprofit organization and is not funded by participating school districts. Skills emphasized include team building, communication, problem solving, goal setting, service learning, and leadership styles. No student selected is turned away based on ability to pay. After limiting the academy to a day camp for the past few years, leaders hope to return to a residential format this year, Masker said. Our day camps were fantastic, but part of the original purpose of the residential camp was for students to experience being away from home for the first time, being responsible for managing their time, and to allow us more of the social interactions of the large group. We are excited to return to this format this year. Iowa School for the Deaf is a great partner for us, and we appreciate being able to work with them. The Academy's budget for the year is about $47,000, which includes food, transportation, supplies, T-shirts, printing, postage, speaker fees, and staff salaries, assuming 112 students enroll, Masker said. We are a separate entity and not supported by school dollars, even though our students serve the schools they represent when they come to camp, she said. Graduates of the academy are expected to perform service projects during the following school year, Masker said. Offering the academy as a residential camp means budgeting for six more meals, housing, and additional salary expenses, so some staff can be on site at all times. Raffle tickets are $5 each and are available from any current leadership student or from Deb Masker at debmasker at gmail.com. 
All right, that takes care of everything on the front page. Moving on now to page A2. We have face of the day. Jordan Cuke. Last name spelled K-E-U-C-K. Cuke. Has a photo of Jordan here by Joe Schur, a mugshot. Well, Jordan is looking forward to learning new things in 2023. She's age 11, is a Council Bluffs native, and is the daughter of Quentin and Bailey Cuke. She is currently a sixth grader at Heartland Christian School. It feels like home for her as the school's executive director, Larry Gray, and secondary teacher, Aaron Gray, are her grandparents. Well, that wouldn't be too bad. Cuke is a student and teacher Heather Stiles' classroom this year, and she said it's been a good experience so far. She said she loves learning about history from all across the globe. Cuke said her class is currently learning about Africa and Egyptian history. Last week, Cuke and her classmates took to their creative sides to and drew portraits of Pharaoh, uh, as you know him, King Tut, as Tutankhamun, also known as King Tut. Cuke said uh, she had a great winter break and Christmas, and she spent the holidays doing various celebrations with family across the Council Bluffs Omaha metro area. Cuke's family owns a five-year-old golden retriever named Luna, who they've had since she was a puppy. Cuke said she loves spending time with her and playing in the yard. Cuke said she does well in the classroom, but in 2023, she's challenging herself to achieve straight A's. All right, Jordan. That must be pretty nice having your grandparents as being in the school and having your granddad as a principal. I think he, if I had my granddad as principal, he probably would have beat me, I don't know, throw me out of the school. wouldn't have been good. It would have come at me with a dish rag, a wet dish rag. Whack, whack, yeah. Moving on to Capital Notebook, Kaufman elected to another term as GOP state chair. That's written uh, by the Lee Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. This is Capital Notebook now. The man who has overseen wild success for Iowa Republican candidates and the preservation of Iowa Republicans first in the nation presidential caucus status has been elected to lead the state party for another two years. Jeff Kaufman was unanimously re-elected Saturday as chair of the Republican Party of Iowa. Kaufman, a community college history professor from Wilton, was given the vote of confidence by the party's state central committee. It will be his fifth term. Since 2015, when Kaufman was elected to his first term, Iowa's congressional delegation has gone from split to entirely Republican, and state government has gone from split control to all Republican control. And in 2024, Iowa Republicans once again will start the National Party's presidential nominating process with the Iowa caucuses. The Iowa Democrats were stripped of their first-in-the-nation status last year. Over the past eight years, Iowa Republicans have achieved spectacular victories for the people of this great state, Kaufman said in a statement. I am honored to remain at the helm of this great organization and see our party through another first-in-the-nation caucus and ultimately victory again in 2024. Linda Upmeyer, a former Iowa House Speaker from Clear Lake, was unanimously reelected as the state party's co-chair. Also here on page A2, free ski and snowboard lessons at Mount Crescent is our front page headline story. I said I said that wrong, not front page, but at least just headline story. Main story for page A2. Summer camp registration opens. A story by David Goldbitz. 
And the photo here shows Ashley Dubois of Omaha, second from left, and her husband, Mark, give their daughters Vivian, age six, and Gemma, Gemma, age five, a ski lesson during a family day of riding at Mount Crescent Ski Arena on Monday, January 16th, 2023. Pottawatomie Conservation is offering free ski and snowboard lessons at Mount Crescent Ski Arena on select days this month in honor of National Learn to Ski and Snowboard Month. On January 18th and 19th and January 25th and 26th, Mount Crescent's 123 Learn to Ski Snowboard lessons are free of charge from 4 to 7 p.m. Lessons will be available on a first-come, first-served basis, and participants must be nine years of age or older. By offering these free lessons, we hope to introduce more local families to the sport and give them the confidence they need to get out there, have fun, and learn something new while enjoying the unique winter beauty of southwestern Iowa's Les Hills, said Kylie Gumpert, Promotions and Outreach Coordinator for Pottawatomie Conservation. Space is limited and participants are encouraged to show up early. Doors open at 3 p.m. Participants will also need to rent or bring their own equipment. By the end of their lesson, participants will be pizza-making professionals, Gumpert said. They will build confidence in their abilities and receive fundamental knowledge, including starting, stopping, and turning to help them have some serious winter fun on the hill this season. Lesson length may vary depending on group size, but are expected to last between 30 minutes and one hour. Mount Crescent will be open for night skiing until 9 p.m. if participants want to purchase a lift ticket after the lesson and put their newly learned skills to the test. Participants will need to fill out a liability waiver before participating, which is available online beforehand at skicrescent.com. Summer camp registration open. Well, the warm days of summer might still be months away, but it's never too early to start thinking about camp. Registration is now open to Pottawatomie Conservation members for its 2023 Nature Camp series. Registration will be open to the public on February 1st. Pottawatomie Conservation is offering a number of educational opportunities this summer for kids ages 3 to 14. We first off have the Wildings Camp with the Hitchcock Nature Center July 31st to August 4th. It's $15 a day or $50 for the week, morning and afternoon sessions available. Campers aged 3 to 5 will learn about new animal native to southwest Iowa each day. The Wild Ones at Arrowhead Park, June 6th through 8th, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Hitchcock Nature Center. That's uh, July. This doesn't read right, but um, anyway. Uh, we have... Uh, Oh, these are different locations. I get it. Okay. Hitchcock Nature Center hosts that Wild Ones on July 25th through the 27th. Cost is $75 per camper per camp. And then uh, students entering first and second grades will have an immersive camp experience, including fort building, hiking, outdoor games, and craft making. From there, we go to Wild Seekers at the Hitchcock Nature Center, June 13th through the 15th, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., then they have it at Arrowhead Park, July 18th through the 20th, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. The cost is $75 per camper per camp. Students entering third and fourth grades will take beginner archery lessons. Hey, there you go. Be like Robin Hood. Participate in shelter building challenges, hiking, plant and animal identification, and craft making. And we have the Wild Wanderers at the Hitchcock Nature Center, June 20th through the 22nd, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Arrowhead Park. 
takes place there July 11th through the 13th, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. Cost is $75 per camper per camp. Students entering 5th and 6th grades will continue learning outdoor survival skills through archery lessons, advanced shelter building, and fire building. And we've finally listed here is Into the Wild. Arrowhead Park and Botna Bend Park, June 27th through the 29th, 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., $100 per camper. Student, students entering 7th, 8th, and 9th grades will have a refresher course on canoe skills and water safety at Arrowhead Park, followed by a canoe ride on the West Nishnabotna River Water Trail and an overnight camp out at Botna Bend Park. For more information about Pottawatomie Conservation's 2023 Summer Nature Camps, you can visit potconservation.com backslash environmental underscore education slash summer underscore camps backslash. All right. I said education backslash summer underscore camps backslash. If you need that address, give us a call here and we can read it to you. And we move on now to page A4. We're talking about breaking the habit. Five things to stop doing if you want a more organized home. Tossing mail. We're going to go through all five steps here. And the photo shown is of a closet being cluttered or however that looks. A wardrobe being cluttered. A bedroom. Number one is tossing mail on the kitchen counter. Yes. It's all too easy for paper to pile up especially if you're in the habit of dropping mail on the counter or entryway table. No one can blame you for this habit. When you're tired and just got home, the last thing you want to do is sort through bills and attend to paperwork. Set up a system. Place a, a small stylish waste paper basket in your entryway or next to your kitchen counter so you can toss out unwanted catalogs right away. When you have time, contact the companies to unsubscribe. Use a bin or tray to corral the mail you need to keep. Consider switching to online billing where possible. It won't help you reach inbox zero, but it will help you keep your kitchen counter clear. Number two, piling clothes on a chair in your bedroom. What if they're not completely worn, but they're still not too dirty? Well, if you're tired at the end of a long day, it's tempting to toss dirty clothes onto the first available surface you see, especially if you're a college kid. Set up a system. Invest in a laundry hamper that has a lid so you can hide dirty clothes when you need to, but leave the lid open. Place the hamper in the most convenient location possible. When you're tired, even little deterrents like removing the lid or opening up your closet can discourage you from staying organized. If the problem is clean clothes that need to go back to in the closet, Consider leaving a few spare hangers near where you get dressed. When items are within arm's reach, you'll be more likely to stick to the system. Number three, leaving shoes around. Especially if you have kids, you may be used to finding sneakers, boots, and ballet slippers littered around the house. Set up a system. Add shoe storage to your entryway or mudroom. And get in the habit of taking your shoes off when you walk in the door. Find a shoe rack that fits your style, whether that's a minimalist bamboo option or a concealed storage cabinet that keeps the footwear out of sight. Number four, buying more items than you have space. Shopping, have it bigger than your storage space. If you're running out of room in your closet, kitchen, or kids' playroom, it's time to follow the golden rule of organizing. You can set up the system, adopt the one-in-one-out rule. If you're adding a new sweater to your collection, donate one you no longer wear. If your child gets five new toys for the holidays, don't donate five toys 
they've outgrown. It's a simple habit that will make sure you never exceed your home's storage space. Finally, number five in this diatribe, throwing everything in the closet. It's the oldest speed cleaning trick in the book. Toss everything in the closet before guests come over. But this method won't actually help you stay organized, and it won't make it any easier to find items later. If you tend to let things pile up on the floor of your utility closet, follow the advice of pro-organizers at the Horderly and install shelves that reach down to the floor. This way you'll be forced to consider what you store and find home for it on the shelves. All right, with that being read and said, uh, some lifestyle advice there. We move on to the obituaries on page A7. But first, we tell you that you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard here on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader today. My name is Andrew Haupt, filling in. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we turn to today's obituaries. The first four, Roger L. Bolt, Bolte, B-O-L-T-E, Roger L. Bolte, age 74, of Council Bluffs, passed away January 16, 2023, at his home. Roger was born August 4, 1948, in Carroll, Iowa, to the late Glenn and Genevieve Anderson Bolte. He grew up in the Malvern, Iowa area, moving to Council Bluffs in 1966, where he graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1966. Roger married Patricia Patty Sorensen on November 18, 1967. He served in the Nebraska National Guard for seven years, achieving the rank of Sergeant E-5. Roger was a member of Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Council Bluffs. He worked for Southwest FS, Inc. in Council Bluffs for 19 years and then Griffin Pipe Products Company for 29 years, retiring in 2014. In 2003, Roger fulfilled a lifelong dream and became a licensed private pilot and accumulated over 350 hours of flying time before being forced to give it up for medical reasons. In addition to his parents, Roger was preceded in death by his wife, Patty, of 36 years in 2003, daughter, Angel, son, Gregory, sister, Charlene Bolte-Looker, and niece, Stacy Graham. Roger is survived by his daughter, Kelly Bolte, and granddaughter, Lily, of Omaha, Nebraska. Visitation with the family Thursday 5 to 7 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral services is Friday at 10 a.m. at the funeral home. Interment is in Silver City, Iowa, at the cemetery with military rites tendered by the Canesville Honor Guard. A lunch will follow at the Walnut Hill Reception Center at 1350 East Pierce Street in Council Bluffs. The family will direct memorial contributions. From there we go to James Wallace McCartney. James McCartney, age 88, died on January 15, 2023, at his home in Papillon, Nebraska. Jim was born on January 5, 1935, in Council Bluffs. He worked for many years for Union Pacific Railroad and enjoyed camping, playing golf, and spending time with family in the mountains of Colorado. Jim is survived by his loving wife of 67 years, Lou Ann Spence McCartney, Daughters Laura married to Pat Long and Linda married to John McGuire and sons John married to Michelle, Joel married to Andrea, and Jason married to Sebastian, McCartney, grandchildren Haley, Sam, Jacob, Joe, Kate, and James, in-laws Ronald married to Evelyn Spence and Lauren married to Diane Spence. 
and many nieces, nephews, and cousins. The family plans to honor Jim with private family services at a later date. In lieu of flowers, Jim's memory may be honored with a contribution to the COPD Foundation or the Council Bluffs Restoration Branch Foundation. Or I'm sorry, Restoration Branch Church. From there we go to Catherine A. Burr, age 81 of Council Bluffs, passed away January 16, 2023 at Bethany Lutheran Home. Kathy was born June 15, 1941 in Council Bluffs to the late Andrew and Maxine Hiles Mace, Sr. She graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1959. Kathy worked at Care Homes, Inc. for the mentally handicapped for 26 years. In addition to her parents, Kathy was preceded in death by her first husband, Bobby Lewis Burr, daughter Nancy F. Burr, grandmother Magdalena Anderson, and grandparents Mr. and Mrs. Ed Hiles, best friends Judy, a maiden named Blunt Taylor, Richard Engelke, and Joe Potter. Survived by her daughter, Kimberly, married to Tom Hears Jr., Nixon, son Heath, married to Amber Burr, grandchildren Grant Edwards McKenna and Kylie Burr, Austin Nixon, Heather Lentz, great-grandchildren Landon, Adeline Maverick, and Macy May Lentz, Colston Matthews, Taylin Nixon, Remington Bringleson, brother Andrew, married to Karen Mace Jr., sister Annette Maine, nieces, nephews, and special friend Aaron Harlow. Visitation with the family will be Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral service Saturday, 12 p.m. to no uh, noon at the funeral home. Interment is at the Branson Cemetery in Loveland, Iowa, with a lunch following at the Walnut Hill Reception Center at 1350 East Pierce Street. The family will direct memorial contributions. Then our final is for Eldred R. Reinert. Eldred R. Reinert, age 88, of Council Bluffs, formerly of Glenwood, Iowa, passed away January 13, 2023. Visitation will be Saturday, January 21, 2023, from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m., with funeral to begin at 10.30 a.m. at the mortuary. Interment will be held at the Glenwood Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to Trinity Lutheran Church at 512 2nd Street in Glenwood, Iowa, 51534. All right, moving on to some news here from page A7. Jill Biden's cancer could fuel advocacy. From left, Dr. Costanza Kosilovo, Jill Biden and Jennifer Aniston participate in an October 3, 2011 event commemorating Breast Cancer Awareness Month at the Inova Alexandria Hospital at Mark Center in Alexandria, Virginia. Dateline Washington, that's written by Darlene Superville of the Associated Press. The story begins, Jill Biden's advocacy for curing cancer didn't start with her son's death in 2015 from brain cancer. It began decades earlier, long before she came into the national spotlight and could now be further energized by her own brush with a common form of skin cancer. The First Lady often says the worst three words anyone will ever hear are, you have cancer. She heard a version of that phrase for herself last week. A lesion the doctors found above her right eye during a routine, a routine screening late last year was removed January 11th and confirmed to be basal cell carcinoma, a highly treatable form of skin cancer. While Biden was being prepped to remove the lesion, doctors found and removed another one from the left side of her chest. 
also confirmed to be basal cell carcinoma. A third lesion from her left eyelid was being examined. While it's too early to know when and how Biden might address her situation publicly, her experience could inject new purpose into what has become part of her life's work, highlighting research into curing cancer and urging people to get regular screenings. Personal experiences can add potency to a public figure's advocacy. Nothing like I've been there, done that, and being personally involved, said Myra Guten, a first lady scholar at Ryder University. Biden's spokesperson, Vanessa Valdivia, said the first lady's fight against cancer has always been personal. She knows that cancer touches us all. Biden's advocacy dates to 1993 when four girlfriends were diagnosed with breast cancer, including her pal Winnie, who succumbed to the disease. She said last year in a speech that Winnie inspired me to take up the cause of prevention and education. That experience led her to create the Biden Breast Health Initiative, one of the first breast health programs in the United States to teach 16 to 18-year-old girls about caring for their breasts. Can I read this on the air? Biden was among staffers who went into Delaware's high schools to conduct lectures and demonstrations. Her mother, Bonnie Jean Jacobs, and father, Donald Jacobs, died of cancer in 2008 and 1999, respectively. A few years ago, one of her four sisters needed an auto stem cell transplant to treat her cancer. In May 2015, Bo Biden, President Joe Biden's son with his late first wife, died of a rare and aggressive brain cancer, leaving behind a wife and two young kids. Joe Biden was vice president at the time, and the blow from Bo's loss led him to decide against running for president in 2016. Jill Biden, who helped raise Bo from a young age after she married his dad, was convinced he would survive the disease and later described feeling blinded by the darkness when he died. After their son's death, the Bidens helped push for a national commitment to end cancer as we know it. Then-President Barack Obama, Biden's boss, put the vice president in charge of what the White House named the Cancer Moonshot. The Bidens resurrected the initiative after Joe Biden became president and added a new goal of cutting cancer death rates by at least 50% over the next 25 years and improving the experience of living with and surviving cancer for patients and their families. We're ensuring that all of our government is ready to get to work, Joe Biden said at the relaunch announcement at the White House last February. We're going to break down the walls that hold research back. We're going to bring the best of our nation together, patients, survivors, caregivers, researchers, doctors, and advocates, all of you, so that we can get this done. In the years between Biden serving as vice president and running for president, the Bidens headed up the Biden Cancer Initiative, a charity. Jill Biden, age 71, has been using her First Lady platform to highlight research into a cancer cure, along with other issues she has long championed, including education and military families. Her first trip outside of Washington after the January 2021 inauguration was to Virginia Commonwealth University's Massey Cancer Center in Richmond to call for an end to disparities in health care that she said have hurt communities of color. She has toured cancer centers, including those for children in New York City, South Carolina, Tennessee, Costa Rica, San Francisco, and Florida, among others. She joined the Philadelphia Eagles and Phillies, two of her favorite professional sports teams, for events, including during the World Series, to highlight efforts to fight cancer through early detection and to honor patients. 
for Breast Cancer Awareness Month last October, Jill Biden hosted a White House event with the American Cancer Society and singer Mary J. Blige, who became an advocate for cancer screening after losing aunts and other relatives to various forms of cancer. The First Lady also partnered with the Lifetime Cable Channel to encourage women to get a mammogram. A Democrat, she gave an interview last year to Newsmax, a conservative cable news channel, to discuss the federal investment in accelerating the cancer fight. She regularly encourages audiences to schedule cancer screening appointments they skipped during the pandemic out of fear of visiting doctors' offices. And here's some surprising news. Maybe not so much. Uh, China announces population decline. That's written by Ken Moritzugu of the Associated Press, Dateline, Beijing. China's population shrank for the first time in decades last year as its birth rate plunged. Officials' figures showed Tuesday, adding to pressure on leaders to keep the economy growing despite an aging workforce and at a time of rising tension with the U.S. Despite the official numbers, some experts believe China's population has been in decline for a few years, a dramatic turn in a country that once sought to control such growth through a one-child policy. Many wealthy countries are struggling with how to respond to aging workforces, which can be a drag on economic growth. But some experts said the demographic change will be especially difficult to manage in a a developing economy like China's. China has become older before it became rich, said Yi Fushuan, a demographer and expert on Chinese population trends at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. The National Bureau of Statistics reported Tuesday that the country had 850,000 fewer people at the end of 2022 than the previous year. The tally includes only the population of mainland China, excluding Hong Kong and Macao, as well as foreign residents. Over 1 million fewer babies were born than the previous year amid a slowing economy and a widespread pandemic lockdown, according to official figures. The Bureau reported 9.56 million births in 2022. Deaths ticked up to 10.41 million. It wasn't completely clear if the population figures were affected by the COVID-19 outbreak that was first detected in the central city, Chinese city of Wuhan, before spreading around the world. China has been accused by some specialists of underreporting deaths from the virus by blaming them on underlying conditions, but no estimates of the actual number have been published. China's population has begun to decline 9 to 10 years earlier than Chinese officials predicted and the United Nations projected, said Yi. The country has long been the world's most populous nation, but it's expected to soon be overtaken by India if it has not already. China has sought to bolster its population since officially ending its one-child policy in 2016. Since then, China has tried to encourage families to have second or even third children with little success, reflecting attitudes in much of East Asia where birth rates have fallen precipitously. In China, the expense of raising children in cities is often cited as a cause. Yi said that based on his own research, China's population has actually been declining since 2018, showing the population crisis is much more severe than previously thought. China now has one of the lowest fertility rates in the world, comparable only to Taiwan and South Korea, he said. That means China's real demographic crisis is beyond imagination and that all of China's past economic, social, defense, and foreign policies were based on faulty demographic data, Yi told the Associated Press. 
China's looming economic crisis will be worse than Japan's, where years of low growth have been blamed in part on a shrinking population, Yi said. On top of the demographic challenges, China is increasingly in economic competition with the U.S., which has blocked the access of some Chinese companies to American technology, citing national security and fair competition concerns. The last time China is believed to have experienced a population decline was during the Great Leap Forward, a disastrous drive for collective farming and industrialization launched by then-leader Mao Zedong at the end of the 1950s that produced a massive famine that killed tens of millions of people. China's Statistics Bureau said the working age population between 16 and 59 years old totaled 875 0.56 0.56 million, accounting for 62% of the national population, while those aged 65 and older totaled 209.78 million, accounting for 14.9% of the total. According to the data from the Statistics Bureau, men outnumbered women by 70, 722.06 million to 689.69 million. The Bureau reported a result of the one-child policy and a traditional preference for male offspring to carry on the family name. The numbers also showed increasing urbanization in a country that traditionally had been largely rural. Over 2022, the permanent urban population increased by 6.46 million to reach 920.71 million, or 65.22%. Moving on now to our sports section. We'll bring this to you briefly. If we have any time, we'll move back into some national news and world news. Girls basketball, Saints, Eagles roll to victory. This written by Austin Heinen. And it gives some scores. St. Albert 52, AHSTW 34. Class 1A number 7, St. Albert pulled away from an upset-minded AHSTW team with a 20-8 fourth quarter to claim a non-conference win on Monday night in Council Bluffs. Missy Ebizik registered a double-double to lead the Saints with 20 points and 10 rebounds. Underwood 67, Missouri Valley 24. Class 2A number 7 Underwood used a key first half where they outscored the Lady Reds 37-14. Elizabeth Jacobson led the Eagles with 17 points. Aaliyah Humphrey added another 13, and Leah Hall contributed 9. From there we go to Shenandoah, 46, to Tri-Center, 32. The Phillies held the Trojans to just 4 points in the second quarter and went on an 8-0 run in the third quarter to pull away from the Trojans. Cassidy Cunningham led TC with 10 points and had 3 rebounds. And finally, Clorinda, 14, and Riverside, 24. The Bulldogs shot just 20% from the court as an offense struggled to find a rhythm. Sophia Taylor and Madison Kelly had each had six points for Riverside. From there we go to boys basketball. Vikings bounce back, Trojans and Eagles win big. This story by Austin Heinen. AHSTW 65, Earlham 27. After being handed their first loss of the season three days earlier, Class 2A number 10 AHSTW earned a non-conference win in Avoca on Monday night to get back on track. Braden Lund had 19 points and 8 rebounds to lead the Vikes, while Kyle Sternberg posted 14 points and 7 rebounds. With the win, AHSTW improves to 12-1 on the season 
and we'll look for win number 13 as they take on IKM Manning on Tuesday night. Check back soon for results on that game. I guess uh, that should have been up by now. If I had more time, I would search it out for you, but you'll just have to uh, wait till next time. Tri-Center 77, Shenandoah 40. The Trojans built a 19-point lead by the end of the first quarter and continued to pull away in each quarter as they outscored the Mustangs in each quarter. Michael Turner led TC with 18 points and 7 assists. Isaac Woolhunter or Huter, and Christian Dahir each had double-doubles. Woolhunter, Woolhunter, W-O-H-L, H-U-T-E-R, Wolhuter, with 12 points and 10 rebounds. Dahir with 10 points and 11 rebounds. Zach Murley scored 15 points with the Trojans to go with three steals and three assists. And finally, Underwood 82, Missouri Valley 37. The Eagles, after opening the game with a 10-point lead by the end of the first quarter, the Eagles lit up the scoreboard while not allowing the Big Reds more than eight points per the final three quarters to earn a convincing win. Alex Rablin led the scoring with 19 points, and Mason Boothby was right behind him with 18 points. Josh Rablin scored 14 points to go with 5 assists, and Jack Van Fossen had 6 points to go with 12 rebounds. All right, from there we go to Titans defense rules in win over Monarchs. Lewis Central head coaches losses to old team. That's written by Austin Heinen. Class 4A, number 15, Lewis Central used dominating defense in the first half that allowed just four first-half points to beat Denison Schleswig 52-24 on Tuesday night in Council Bluffs. We asked the girls to come out and play with energy, Titans coach Chris Hannafin said. We played very well defensively, especially in the first half. It transitioned into our offense, which led to some breakout points and just moved the ball really well early in the first half. But the main thing was definitely our defense again. It put a lot of pressure on them, and it made a big difference for us. The Titans got off to a hot start starting the game with an 8-0 run before the Monarchs sank a free throw to get on the board. The Titans followed that up with a 13-0 run that spanned through the midpoint of the first quarter through the first two minutes of the second quarter. The Monarchs didn't sink their first shot from the floor until 2 minutes and 36 seconds remained in the first correction in the second quarter, only to have the Titans respond again with a 7-0 run to cap off the first half. I think our 2-3 defense can shut down everybody, Brooke Larson said. When we run it well, it's amazing. It's all about communication, and our communication was good tonight, and we're very good at that. We all blend very well together to make this defense work. Well, the Monarchs found some rhythm to keep pace in the second half, but the deficit was too large to overcome as the Titans held on for a strong win. Larson led the Titan with 17 points. Lucy Scott had 10 points, and Anna Strohmeyer had 8 points. Our girls played hard. Our defense was stellar in the first half, Hannafin said. It seemed like we were getting a hand on every pass of theirs. We changed some things in the second half just because we wanted to work on some things, and it was good for us to be able to do that. I got to credit these girls. They play hard, and there's never a time when they don't. The Titans will now prepare to host Shenandoah on Friday at 6 p.m. Well, that takes care of the local sports. Let's move on now to some nation and world news here on page 8A. We'll start it off with the digest section. Netherlands to assist Ukraine. Dateline Washington. Netherlands 
Prime Minister Mark Rutte said Tuesday during a meeting with Joe Biden that the Netherlands plans to join the U.S. and Germany's efforts to train and arm Ukraine with advanced patriot defense systems. During a brief appearance with Biden, Ruddy did not detail whether the Dutch are expected to send Patriot systems, take part in training, or offer some other assistance related to deployment of Patriots. Ruddy said he also spoke with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz on Tuesday about the Netherlands' efforts. Ruddy spoke about the potential assistance as Ukrainian troops arrived at Oklahoma's Fort Sill Army Base to begin training on operating and maintaining the Patriot missile defense systems. The Patriot is the most advanced surface-to-air missile system the West has provided to Ukraine to help repel Russian aerial attacks. Activists doubt talks credibility. From Mombasa, Kenya. Climate activists in Africa expressed anger this week toward the United Nations Climate Agency, accusing it of allowing corporations and individuals with dubious climate credentials to greenwash their polluting activities by participating in its annual climate conference. The criticism follows Thursday's announcement that oil executive Sultan Al-Jaber will lead the next round of UN climate talks, which will be in the United Arab Emirates beginning in late November. The Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance termed the move as the lowest moment for the U.N. agency. The U.N. climate body hasn't commented on the appointment. Activists are increasingly concerned about the oil and gas representatives thwarting the conference where countries try to agree on ways to cut planet warming activities. An analysis of the provisional list of last year's conference participants found 636 people linked to fossil fuel companies were set to attend a 25% increase from 2021. And just as a note, I very much enjoy my V8 sedan. Yes, yes. I like to go fire it up and listen to that engine roar. White House gets defensive on probe. This will be our final story, most likely. Biden officials say they may withhold details to protect investigation. Dateline Washington. It's an AP story. The White House brushed aside criticism Tuesday of its fragmented disclosures about the discovery of classified documents and official records at Joe Biden's home and former office, saying it may withhold information to protect the Justice Department's investigation. Ian Sams, a spokesperson for the White House Counsel's Office, told reporters the White House released information as it deemed appropriate. Responding to criticism of the piecemeal disclosures, Sam said the White House was trying to be mindful of the risk in sharing information that's not complete, quote-unquote. We're endeavoring to be as transparent and informative to you all in the media, to the public, as we can, consistent with respecting the integrity of the ongoing Justice Department investigation, he said. The discovery of the documents in Biden's possession complicates a federal probe into former President Donald Trump, who Justice Department says took hundreds of records marked classified with him upon leaving the White House in early 2021 and resisted months of requests to return them to the government. While Biden willingly turned over documents once found, they are a political headache for a president who promised a clean break from the operations of the Trump administration. All right, one last thing to tell you about is Greta Thunberg. She's being carried away by police. Uh, it, the uh, title is marked Climate Change. The, uh, I won't read you the whole story because we don't have time, but it, the headline is Officials Break Up New Protest, and it shows police officers carrying away Greta Thunberg, both hand and foot, from the edge of the Gartzweiler 2 open cast Ignite Mine Tuesday during a protest by climate activists after a, the clearance of 
Lutzerath, Germany. It's quite an interesting picture indeed. Well, on that happy note, I will leave you to say goodbye. Thanks for listening to this uh, episode of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil here on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader today, Andrew Halp. Thanks for listening. It's been great to be with you. Have a nice day. Straight ahead. <laughs> <laughs>